So now I'd like to uh, welcome up our uh, testimony for today from Cheryl Lindquist. good? We're good? Good morning. I believe I am the last steering committee member to share my story. Graham had this great idea at my first meeting that we should all do this, and I was like, I think I might just go now. I'm cool. I like to keep my private stuff private, but I'll do it. Um, so I'm Cheryl, and I am a preacher's kid. I am a PK, and I am not and was not the sweet, angelic, well-behaved, perfect PK. I have four sisters that had a pretty solid handle on that, and that was not my thing. By, by the time I was in high school, I pretty much hated church. I hated the people, I hated the building, I hated the food, I hated the events. I, I was done with the, the, the group that I grew up with was very a little judgmental and a little holier than thou, and I didn't really, I didn't really like that, and I didn't really fit in with that. So by the time I was in high school, I, uh, I was pretty much done with it. I liked God. God was okay. God was cool, but the, but his people just, I didn't, I didn't. It was not my thing. On top of my disillusionment with church and everything, the expectations as the pastor's family was a bit ridiculous, and I disagreed with most of it, and so that created some conflict between me and my parents, and I was constantly looking for a way to escape it all. So there was positive escapes, and there were negative escapes. Um, The only place I really felt free to be me without the expectations or restrictions was at the camp I worked at all summer. That's where I met Kit. Um, (laughs) uh, The first summer I met him, he was this good, clean-cut, well-behaved, homeschooled Christian boy, and I just thought (sighs) he was such a dork and we did not hang out (laughs) Um, at all. the second summer, I met him again the next, the next summer, and um, obviously, since we just celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary and we have six children, we, I, uh, I, I gave him a shot. Um, <laughs> I, uh, he was funny, he challenged me, he, he told me I was better than what I was doing. He was, he was the first Christian that was, um, fun to be around. Um, We hit it off. We hit it off very well. And just before Christmas of that year, we got pregnant. Dun, dun, dun. Um, (laughs) I lived in denial for weeks and weeks. And when I couldn't do that anymore, and it was confirmed that yes, yes, I was pregnant, I sat on my bedroom floor and cried. <laughs> I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I knew absolutely I was keeping my baby, but I didn't know. 
How? Um, okay. So later that night, I made a choice that would shape the rest of my life. I, sitting alone in the dark, crying, 17 and pregnant, I said, God, I can't do this. I, I can't do this alone. We both know that 100% I will screw this up if left to my own devices. I need you to take all of this mess that I've made and I need you to take it and I need you to fix it and I will do what you say and I will go where you tell me to go, but I can't do it alone. I can't. So that's how I became Christian. Um, I told my parents about the baby at the end of February and they did not handle it well. The next three months were the hardest of my life. Um, that July, I married Kit and moved two and a half hours away from my family and friends and it was one of the best things I ever did. It's not easy to move to a place knowing only one person, but it was important if I wanted to give my marriage and my new family a chance. So I started um, attending the church that Kit was going to um, with him, which was awkward. Um, it's, uh, it's not easy walking into a new church, um, 18 and pregnant, and um, oddly enough, you're not the most popular person there, and uh, there's a lot of people that don't even want to talk to you. Um, but I tried to focus on why I was there, which was I wanted my marriage to work, and I wanted to be a good mom, and I knew I couldn't do it without God. Um, while at the church, I met three women, different ages, different generations, different times, um, and they really, they really lived God's love in action. They were kind. They included me. They invited me into their homes. They treated me like any other mom and newly married woman. They were supportive of our marriage, and they were excited for our baby and didn't treat me like a screw-up. So that was pretty good. Um, these three women have had such a positive impact on me and my faith. They actually showed they were Christians by their love, which was something I had not experienced before that. Um, the church we were going to, in my opinion, was not so great. I never really felt welcomed or accepted, and I prayed for a long time after a number of years there um, about leaving. Prayed for a clear sign, which you got to be careful doing, um, because you often get one, which I did. Um, the next church we went to was very different. It was, it was a group of Christians who were really adamant about showing love and showing kindness and meeting people where they were at and not treating anyone, not judging people. Um, it was a very healing place for me. For the first time, I felt welcome and accepted and valued for me. Unfortunately, 
that church ended up closing, so we were in a position of looking for a new church. I really wanted something with genuine people, friendly, welcoming, no matter what your past or present was, um, someplace that really let people know that they were Christians by their love, um, somewhere that my kids could grow up knowing that they were welcomed and valued and loved, um, a safe community of Christians that acknowledged that they weren't perfect and that that was okay. Uh, we heard good things about Into One from the Mitchells. I value Miss Lisa Mitchell's good opinion. Um, she is like a sister to me. Um, anyways, we heard about Into One for years. We were invited to dinners where Into One people were, and at one point I was like, are you trying to recruit us to your church? <laughs> um, and... Um, since the church was within my 15-minute uh, driving radius, anything longer, we will not make it. Um, I thought, okay, you know what, let's give it a try. The, there's some kids that are our kids' ages, some of them, not all of them, because there's so many of them. Um, but we thought, you know what, let's give it a try. Um, I'm glad we did, because while Into One may not have a lot of um, programs and we may be lacking in some older youth, um, <laughs> which was important to us, but you know what? It, it's filled with, with genuine, caring, and loving people, and that's really more important. So, ta-da! I'm not sure about you, but I can't get enough of, of these stories, and I know that I made a, a bunch of people feel awkward and uncomfortable, and the vast majority of people don't say, may I please tell you about my story? But the connection that we can get together because of the honesty that's there, and everyone who's sitting there who hasn't done it, you, you have a different kind of view about what it's like to tell the truth about you. But this is the truth that we are. This is where God met us. This is where God looked at you in the face and said, I love you. No matter what you've done. Not even, doesn't even matter what you're doing. God loves you right there in that spot. And he has a plan and a purpose and a direction to help and to transform and to move you forward. But in that moment, you need to understand where you are is exactly in a place where God loves you. And as into one, it is our desire to do those things, to welcome. To welcome in the name of Jesus and say, rather have you here than anywhere else. Let's move forward together. And that's why we continually say, we want to welcome you to join us on this road trip. On this road trip in earnest pursuit of Christ. You have heard many people confess before you. Well, I guess if you haven't been here, you haven't heard them, but there were. And they told the truth, and they said, this is where I am as an honest person. I'm moving in a direction, and Jesus has been transformative in my life, and that's where I want to go. And that's what we want to emphasize. So I want to thank all the members of uh, the, the, the steering committee that I have asked to say, please, tell us. And I didn't tell them that you had to go and, and show embarrassing things. I just said, tell them about Jesus in your life. 
But for us to understand Jesus in our life, we almost always have to say, do you know what's hard? Do you know where I fell down? Do you know how I got picked up? Because this is the story of Jesus. Jesus isn't the story of everything's always been great and it's never been lousy. That's not the story. The story is I hurt and I messed up. And then after that, I did it again. It's a beautiful story. I love hearing them. Thank you, Cheryl, again for the vulnerability, the trust that you're showing to us in that. And it is beautiful. It really is. Thank you. Um, We're going to get started sermon. So if you've got your hand out there, you can follow along in that. If you're visiting with us, there's a section you can tear off and you can fill out that. If you would like to let us know that you are here, let us uh, respond to your visit. We'd love to do that. Um, there's notes in there. There's going to be notes up on the screen up here. And if you like your, uh, the mobile phone kind of idea, you can follow along on the free app called Version. The bottom right corner, there's a tab called More, then Events, then search into one, and all of our notes will appear there for you. You can make notes in there. The Bible passages will all be there. All of our announcements are there. There's a link for online giving. It's all there. Okay, so because we're so close to Halloween, uh, I wanted to begin this new series with an absolutely outrageously terrible story, a Halloween kind of story. That's the way I wanted to do it. And as we get started, just pray with me, please. Kind Father, thank you for your presence with us. Holy Spirit, feel free to move in this place, in me, and in these, my friends, that are here. Speak to us today, that you might also later on speak through us. Um, We long to see your kingdom come. We long to see hope come from despair. These are things that we would really love to be a part of, and thank you for being in partnership with us, calling us forward, moving us in that direction. Help us to, uh, to see you today, in Jesus' name, amen. Because I can't get it off my mind, um, Philip, can I just ask to make sure that we're recording? It's been on my head and I can't release it, so I've, I've said it, now I want to be done with that. Okay, this story is in the Bible, all right? It's been there, it's never been hidden, it's in every Bible, except those Gideon ones that they hand out um, that are just, you know, the New Testament and Psalms and Proverbs. It's there, but it's kind of hidden in plain sight. It's a little bit long, and so instead of reading the story from beginning to end, I'm going to summarize it for you. I'm going to try and tell it to you, let you know it's in the book of Judges, let you know it starts at uh, chapter 19 if you want to read the whole thing. And then later on, you'll be able to read the whole thing in its entirety. All the creepy craziness will be there. You can read it to yourself in some dark, rainy night when you're all alone in a spooky, creepy house. You can read this story, and it'll be a wonderful experience for you. Most of the stories that we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks come to us through the book of Judges. Um, The book of Judges is a narrative, and it's a series of narratives about ancient Israel. And this period of history takes place just after the time that uh, the Israelites arrived in the promised land. They came with Joshua, and you remember that Moses led his people out of Egypt. Let my people go. And then, then Moses dies, and Joshua takes over, and he's the one who leads the people into the promised land. He gets them all settled in. He gets them all tucked into their different areas. They divided up the land into 12 different locations. And then 330 years later, Israel becomes a monarchy with King Saul and King David. And that 330 years is when these stories happen. This is when basically the whole book of Judges takes place. And during this time, they were basically a commonwealth, which is uh, kind of like a bunch of colonies with no central government. They had a common ancestry, they had common religion, they had a common language, but they were all alone. You know that song, till the one day when this lady met this fellow and they knew they were much more than a hunch? 
that these groups must somehow form a family? That's how they became the Israeli bunch? Yeah, well, it was funny in my head, but that happens later. They come together at the end, and this time they, uh, they were not together. Later on, they, they become unified under a king, but right now they're 12 different sections. They had lots in common, but 12 distinct tribes. Why 12, you might ask? Well, quick Bible history again. Um, Abraham gave birth to Isaac. Isaac gave birth to Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Each one of those sons grew up, and the 12 tribes are named after them, the 12 tribes of Israel. And Israel is the name of the country, but Israel is also the name that Jacob was given later in his life. So that's how we follow those things on. It's a tremendously relational idea, tremendously family-feeling that this is the way God works with us, this very family kind of idea. And in the time of the judges, there was the, the 12 separate and distinct, distinct tribes inhabiting the nation, the promised land. There's no king because they were supposed to view God as their king. God saved them from Egypt. God brought them out. God set up the relationship, and then they were supposed to treat God as their king. That's the way that it was supposed to work. He had given his law, and they were supposed to obey, and there would be judges they would be raised up, these judges, that's why the book is called Judges, and these judges would essentially rule, but they weren't kings, they, their only authority was to distribute the law, um, to, to try and make sure that that was being followed, to keep adhering to that. And in some cases, they would have more specific rules to deliver the nation, to, to rescue Israel, or to set the nation, that, the specific tribe, free from their enemies. And the reason they had to do that is because this is what happened. The nation abandoned God's law <clears throat> because the nation of Israel in this time period has something in common with you. They didn't like to be told what to do. Nobody likes to be told what to do. And besides, is that really a law? I mean, there's no king. There's nobody make me doing it. There's no real government and it looked like no one was in charge. So everybody just did whatever they wanted to do, which meant that they would go through a cycle. The cycle looks like this. There comes up, this comes up a bunch in the Old Testament, um, specifically in the book of Judges, but the Old Testament in general. These people would disobey God's law, and that would result in disaster. Then they would cry out for help, and God would send a deliverer. And then they would go back and disobey again. Then there would be a disaster, and they would cry out for deliverance. Then they would say, I'm never, ever, ever going to do that again. Does that story even sound a little bit familiar? Maybe not to you, but to your neighbor. Right? This is the, what we do. And the interesting thing about this book of Judges, even if you're not a religious person, you have nothing to do with Christianity, there's something that we all have in common. At some point in your life, you disobeyed. You disobeyed something. Maybe it's a religious law that you grew up with. Maybe, maybe you disobeyed your parents. Maybe you disobeyed your conscience. And after a time, there was a disaster. Something went wrong. Oh my gosh, I've gotten myself into this mess. Because we disobeyed the law. We disobeyed your conscience. We disobeyed your parents. Maybe you even disobeyed God. Then, then, then you come to that place and say, I need, I need, I need help, help, help. And then somebody came along. And somebody gave you a break. And somebody gave you a second chance. Or somebody bailed you out. Somebody paid a fine. Somebody helped you to study. And then you said, I'll never, ever do that again. I'll never go back. And you didn't. For about a week. Maybe two. And the book of Judges is about a nation for over 300 years that just 
got into trouble and got delivered. They got into trouble and then they got rescued. And in that way, there is so much about that book that reflects all of our lives. And at the very end of the book of Judges, there's this outrageous story and it reflects just how bad things had gotten in the nation of Israel. It reflects what happened to a group of people in a community uh, or nation or even an individual one. They decide, I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what I think is right. You do what you think is right and I'll do what I think is right. You do what you do and don't tell me what to do. What's right for you, not right for me. So just mind your own business. And the whole thing, that whole way of living devolved into a story that we're going to look at now that's just incredibly hard to believe. So remember at this time in the nation, um, it's divided up into 12 tribes. And these tribes have tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people. And they live in different parts of what we would call the Holy Land. Philip's going to throw up a picture for us and it's absolutely illegible. But there it is. Imagine you could read that. And we're going to have um, a Levite. A Levite is a guy from the tribe of Levi who lived in the hill country of the tribe of Ephraim. It's sort of in the middle. And this guy, whose name we don't know, got himself a girlfriend. And throughout the story, she's referred to as a concubine, which is kind of like a combo of a girlfriend, servant, common-law consort, if you will, something like that. And this relationship was against the law, against the customs of the Israelites. Concubining was a cultural inheritance from the Canaanites, the people who surrounded um, Israel. And they were told, don't mix, don't follow what these people around you do. It'll get you into trouble. And this is a good way to indicate that, you know, the problems were caused in this sort of way. His girlfriend was from this place called Bethlehem in Judea, one full tribe at the top of the next tribe's land. So he'd gone down south to Bethlehem, and he found this woman. And he brought her back up to live with him in Ephraim. Well, things happen. It turns out she's unfaithful to him. And he finds out. And then she finds out that he found out. So she hits the road and runs away back to her uh, family in Bethlehem, moves back in. Time passes. Okay? And we don't know if he just got over being angry or if he just got lonely. But he decides, hey, you know what? I need to go get my concubine. So he travels south, goes back down through the land of Benjamin to Judah, to Bethlehem, and he shows up at his father's house and says, hey, I come from a woman, your daughter. Well, daddy's not really all that excited about this, and so he's got a plan of his own. And so what he does is he keeps the Levite up late at night talking and drinking. Talk and drink and drink and talk and drink and drink. And the guy wakes up late in the morning. It's by noon. He can finally start to see straight. And he says, it's time to go home. I got to get home. And the concubine's father says, oh, man, it's too late. You can't start a journey this late in the day. Why don't you go tomorrow? So that night, he keeps him up talking and drinking, talking and drinking. And he wakes up late in the morning again. It's about noon. Hey, I want to go. You can't go. It's too late. So he stays. And this goes on day after day after day after day. Finally, one day, he wakes up. It's that same sort of the situation. We have to go right now. So he loads up his two donkeys with him. He takes his male servant, the concubine, and they leave Bethlehem. And they travel back, now on their way up to Ephraim, um, to get this whole relationship thing straightened out to get life back on track. 
Well, they left too late in the day. And so that's trouble. They're on the road and the sun's going down and they end up at the gates of a town called Gibeah in the lands of the tribe of Benjamin. They arrive and they head to the town square because this is how stuff works. The laws of hospitality say that if you end up in a town and you need a place to, uh, to stay, you go to the center of town. There's no hotels, there's no motels, there's no motor lodges, no bed and breakfast, no restaurants. The town square is usually formed around a well and there you would go and there you would wait and someone would see you and then they would come out and introduce themselves to you and then they would invite you into their home, especially if you were an Israelite. But nobody shows up and they're waiting and there's no eye contact, right? They just don't look at him. They pretend he's not there. And so they wait and the sun is going down. The sun is set. There's still nobody there. They're still out in the middle of town. They're getting ready to sleep there. Finally, a man comes through the gates, and he's on his way home, and he sees these people in the town square. He introduces himself to them, and he invites them to his home. And through the discussion, they discover that this kind fella also a long time ago used to live in Ephraim. And so they look at each other, and they go, oh, my goodness, it's such a small world. And they go, yeah, you remember this? And they have this great conversation. So now we've got a Levite, the concubine, the male servant, two donkeys, and a guy from Gibeah who was also from Ephraim who's showing hospitality. Any questions? Okay, good, because this is when the story starts to get weird. Jump down to Judges 19, starting at verse 21. And the author tells us this is what's going on. They sort of get settled. They're in there together. It's late in the evening, and they've finished their eating and, and drinking. Now verse 22. The house is surrounded by what is called wicked men. And they begin pounding on the door. And they say to the man living there, bring out the man who came into your house so we can have sex with him. Now this is not so much a matter of gratification as it was about humiliation. This is another Canaanite import. The Canaanite men would quite often do this to humiliate another man. Israel was told to be separate from the nations around her, to not get infected by their ways of living. But that didn't happen again. So they're there pounding on the door and they're saying, we don't like strangers. We don't like guests. We don't like your kind in these here parts. Nobody invited you. We want you to leave now. And when you leave, we're going to teach you a lesson. And that lesson will stick with you. So when you leave, you'll tell people, don't go to Gibeah. They don't like strangers. They're not hospitable. They don't want us around. Verse 23, so the owner of the house went out and said to them, no, my friends, don't do this. Don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. He's saying, consider the laws of hospitality, okay? Now that he's been in my home, I'm responsible for him. I'm his protector. He's under my roof. And now we're going to kick up the weird or the strange even more. Remember week two of our last series? We talked about what the predominant view of women was, their property, that their possessions. Well, here's some evidence of what's going on. Verse 24, the man says, look, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the man would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they, and frankly, I don't want to write out the rest of what's there. I don't, I don't, you can read it 
yourself, but it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. And the next morning, the Levite wakes up, and he gets to the door, and right at the doorstep, there lay his dead concubine. And he takes her body, and he puts it on his donkey, and he, and he loads the other donkey up. He grabs his male servant, and they leave town, and they make their way back to Ephraim. And he is so angry. The laws of hospitality have been violated. There's been a betrayal by his own Israelite people, and his concubine has been murdered in a horribly brutal manner. He almost lost his own life, and he thinks to himself, something must be done. So he writes a letter, and he's going to send this letter to all the 12 tribes, to all the civic leaders, and he says in the letter, blah, 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 this is what happened. And he lays out the story, and he, and he gives it to them, and then he hires some servants to make sure that these letters go to the 12 tribes. And then he stops and he thinks to himself, man, nobody's going to do anything because I wrote a letter. Nobody even knows who I am. So he comes up with a creepy idea. He chops his concubine up into 12 pieces, wraps the body parts up, attaches them to the letter, and sends out that to all the different tribes in Israel. So two or three days later, the mayors or something like that in all these little towns, um, they get this, the, the mail delivery comes in and they go, here's the letter and here's your package. And they open it up and they're just horrified. And then they're outraged. We have sunk to an all new low. Things have been bad before, but never like this. This is too far even for us. How could one tribe do some, such a thing to another tribe? And so all the leaders get together. We see this in verse 30. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came out of Egypt 330 years ago. Just imagine, we must do something. So speak up. So messages and letters are sent, and a plan is set in motion. They're going to raise up an army from all the tribes. They're going to show up outside the gates of Gibeah, and they are going to say, we demand that justice be done. Bring out the perpetrators of this crime. You can jump to Judges 20, verse 1. Then all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and from the land of Gilead, came together as one and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. They sent out a message. Every single city, every single tribe has to send armed representatives. We're going to show up in force. We are going to get this thing sorted out. Justice will be served. And when they get to Mizpah, all the men come together and they make an oath. And the oath is that no matter what happens, we will never allow our daughters to marry a Benjamite, ever. And then they march in force, and they stand outside the gates of Gibeah. And they demanded that the Benjamites turn over to them the perpetrators of this crime. Well, a letter and a body part went to Benjamin as well. And so they expected this to happen. So all of Benjamin is waiting, gathered outside the city of Gibeah, waiting for these people to arrive. And they say, no, we're not going to give you those men. There's been no trial. Besides, these are our people. We'll take care of this ourselves. This is more of an in-house kind of matter. And we'll judge them by our own laws. And when messages are sent back and forth again, and the 11 tribes attack Gibeah. And on the first day of the battle, the 11 nation, or the 11 tribes are driven back. And thousands, tens of thousands of men from those 11 tribes are killed in battle. And the Benjamites are victorious. The next day, 
the same thing happens. Thousands slaughtered in battle. And once again, the perpetrators of the crime are not brought to justice. And it looks like they're going to win. But on the third day, they come up with a new strategy. The 11 tribes fight and then retreat. And so the Benjamites follow them to drive them out. And as they leave, the Israelites, uh, there's another force that sneaks in behind, surrounds the city, and they light it on fire. Now everyone who's run away turns back as they can see the city's on fire, and the Benjamites turn around and panic. And they run back to the city, and now, now the battle turns. The other 11 tribes, they are all riled up, and they're really riled up good. Their bloodlust is up, and they have had it. They are angry. They burn Gibeah to the ground. They kill every man, every woman, every child, every animal, but they're not done. They are enraged. And so they now go city by city throughout the entire countryside. And they do the same thing to every city in the tribe of Benjamin. They burn every city to the ground. They kill every man they come across. They kill every woman. They kill every child. And they even kill every animal. And so the whole region of Benjamin is now just a smoldering, smelly, horrible, war-torn battlefield. And everything is dead. But of that original army that was roused to defend Gibeah, there were 600 men, and they had escaped into the desert, from far from where the battles took place. And for four months, they stayed there, scared to death to come back because they didn't know what would happen. Well, after the battle lust begins to calm, the bloodlust is drained away, several weeks go by, and it dawns on the leaders of the other 11 tribes, oh no, what have we done? We have just wiped out an entire tribe of Israel. Now instead of there being 12 tribes, there will only be 11 tribes. And they begin to repent. They say, oh God, we are so sorry. Oh no, there's been a genocide. God, forgive us for killing an entire tribe of your people. And then someone in the back raises their hand. And they said, well actually, there's 600 of them who are stuck, stuck out in the desert. Perhaps we could coax them back out. And then somebody else raises their hand over here and they said, yeah. Yeah, but they're all male. They don't have any wives. And we've all made an oath saying that we won't allow our daughters to marry a Benjamite ever. Oh, great. Now what do we do? And then someone else raises their hand. He says, well, are there any cities that were non-committal to this battle? Were there any cities that didn't send representatives? And somebody else says, yeah. I don't think I saw anyone who came in from Jabesh Gilead. And so they come to the crowd and they say, is there anybody here from Jabesh Gilead? Anybody know anybody from Jabesh Gilead? Same response. No hands. Nothing. So a brilliant idea strikes these guys. They put together a smaller army of the 11 tribes and they send them to the city of Jabesh Gilead with these instructions. Maybe you've heard these before. Kill every man. Kill every woman. Burn the city to the ground. Take all the young girls, kidnap them, and we will give these women to the men who are coming in from the desert as wives so that we don't completely annihilate the tribe of Benjamin. You had no idea the story was in the Bible, did you? This is there, and it's just sickening. It's terrible. But wait, there's still more. So that's what they do. They send this army off. Fresh off the devastation of the lands of Benjamin, they destroy the city of Jabesh Gilead. They burn it to the ground. They kill all the men. They kill all the women. They kidnap and carry off all the young girls and young women. 
and they coax these men out of the desert and they say, oh man, we are so sorry. Wow, did we ever get carried away? Sorry about that. Now we have some good news and we have some bad news. Bad news? Okay, well the bad news is that we've kind of destroyed your entire land. Uh, We've killed all your mothers and your fathers. We've killed your brothers and your sisters and even all your animals. We've burned all your cities to the ground. But the good news, the good news is that we have kidnapped for you some unwilling brides-to-be so that you can now repopulate the tribe of Benjamin. All right, back to the bad news. There's about 600 of you, but there's only about 400 brides-to-be. So not everyone's going to get a new wife. But there's another hand in the back. They say, hey, I've got an idea. In a few days, there's going to be a festival in Shiloh. And as part of this festival, all of the young girls from that area come out and they do a dance. Here's my idea. Why don't we let the men who don't have any wives yet hide in the forest? And when all those girls come out to sing and to dance, we'll let the men who are hiding in the forest run out and kidnap a girl so that they can have an unwilling bride as well. And then the the people in the the 11 tribes says, and we'll back you guys up, don't worry, because we'll go and tell all the fathers of these girls that they don't need to worry about violating their oath because they never gave you their daughter. They don't need to worry because they never willingly gave their daughters. It's good news because they were kidnapped instead. And we'll tell all the fathers that this is a good thing because this is how we're going to save the tribe of Benjamin that just a few weeks ago we were all working together to kill and to destroy. And so they do. That's what happens. They hide in the woods. The young ladies come out and do their spring dance. The men who lost the previous wife lottery spring out from the trees and grab themselves a woman. And then basically all 600 of these guys hike back up to the smoldering lands of Benjamin with their wives on their shoulders, and they set off to rebuild and repopulate their homeland. Then the book of Judges ends. No heroes. Nothing good. Now, how many of you were raised in a home where they would read you Bible stories maybe at supper or maybe before bed? They skipped this one, didn't they? And you'd ask, hey, Dad, I want to hear the one about the concubine and the chainsaw. And he'd say, no, 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 that's for Halloween. We just saved that for when your friends come over at Halloween, we'll tell you that story. The writer of Judges ends this unbelievable story with a comment. And this is the final verse in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And because there was no king, Because there was no final authority, because they had rejected God actively working or speaking into their lives, because there was no one to impose the law of God, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. To put it another way, in those days, there was no binding moral consensus. So people followed their own moral compass. Everybody just kept doing what they thought was right at the time. Even stranger than the story itself is if you go back and read through the story, at every point along the way, every single character does what they thought was the right thing to do. But when you stand back from all of those right decisions, it's chaos. 
The men in Gibeah said, we have a right. We've had bad experiences in the past. We don't like strangers. This is our town. We have a right to decide who stays here and who doesn't, don't we? Yes, we do. We'll send that guy out here because we're going to teach him a lesson. Then our reputation will get out and there will be no more strangers visiting our town. Problem solved. We have the right to protect ourselves. Who knows what them strangers will bring into our land? We'll humiliate him to the point that he will never come back. And no one he knows will ever come back here either. Don't we have a right to do that? Absolutely we do. And then the Levite in the house at night, the door is getting pounded on and he says to his concubine, if it wasn't for you, I would never even have been here. Your family is so lousy and you were unfaithful to me. It's your fault that we are here. So out you go. Here you go, guys, take her. After all, she's just a woman. She's my property. She got me into this trouble in the first place. That makes sense. It seems fair to me. And then when she's murdered, well, there has to be justice. How am I going to get people's attention? I can't just write a letter. Hey, bad things happened on my road trip. That won't work. Let's chop her up. That will get some attention. And now the whole nation demands justice. This is the right thing to do. And the guy from the tribe of Benjamin says, hey, you just can't come in here and carry off our people. You're not going to push us around. They're from our tribe. We'll deal with it. What choice do we have but to defend them? And the rest of Israel thinks, well, the right thing to do is to, to teach Gibeah a lesson. It's the right thing to do. Let's teach the whole tribe a lesson. It's the right thing to do. Let's try and save this tribe from extinction. It's the right thing to do to try and find these guys some wives. And Jabesh Gilead was supposed to come, but they didn't. So it's the right thing to teach them a lesson and take wives from there. At every point along the way, you can drop in an argument over why these people were doing the right thing. And everybody just kept on doing what was right in their own eyes. And it was horrific and chaotic. And here's the thing. This is why we're going to talk about this for a bit. There is a little bit of all of that in you. And there's some of that in me. There's something in me that says it's my life. I'll do what I want to do. You manage your life in your family. I'll manage my life in my family. This is what's right for me, whether or not it's right for you. And what we're exposing right now, when we take it from the past and we bring it into the present, what we're really exposing is kind of that dirty underbelly of the North American dream. And in this dream, we demand the freedom to do what we want, when we want, with whom we want. I don't want anyone getting in my face and telling me what to do. And now because we're kind of civilized, we add one little tiny caveat or one little condition to that, as long as nobody gets hurt, as long as I don't hurt anybody. There's all kinds of problems when you think about this. So that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. We're going to think about this. We're going to tell some more stories. And every day you have to battle this thing because from somewhere around you, it reaches up and it stirs you up, that part of you, that part that just wants to do what you want, when you want, with whom you want, and nobody can tell me what to do. Oh yeah, as long as I don't hurt anybody. But there's a problem with that. 
because to think only the super rich can afford it. It will not take you long before you have to have an eternity if this is the way you're going to live. And honestly, if you're going to live like this, for a, you're probably going to need to have an army of attorneys to be able to do this. And honestly, it's only the, the, the people who actually preach this message are those super rich entertainment kind of people. And they write the songs and they write the movies. They're driving that narrative. And so you might listen to a song and it stirs something up inside and you go, yes, that's me. I really am born to be wild. Because I'm bad to the bone. And we watch characters and we say, oh, I want to be like him. I like the way she does that. That's what I want to be. And it stirs us up. And so we buy the music and we watch that movie. We read that book and we buy the clothes to be just like that person. But in the real world, you'll never hear anyone preaching this message. You will never hear a grade five teacher say this. The grade, right before Halloween, there's no grade five teacher who's going to say, okay, class, just remember, it's all about your personal happiness. You must be able to do what you want, with whom you want, when you want. And please don't let anyone tell you what to do, boys and girls. See you tomorrow. Have all the candy you can eat. Do it as much as possible. Dismissed. There's no one in child services who will come to you and say, hey, we've taken your children away because you're completely irresponsible. But the key to getting your children back and to being happy is to continue to do what you want, when you want, and with whom you want. Because that's the key to happiness. As soon as you master that, we'll give you back your kids. There will never be a parole officer explaining this. There will never be a judge that will recommend this because people who live on the consequence side of the equation, they just know better. Another problem with that philosophy is that this generally works out way better for men than women. You notice that? In a world where men do what they want, when they want, with whom they want, women eventually become possessions and profit centers every time. And everywhere in the world that women have rights, they had to fight for them. Because when men do what's right in their own eyes, when there is no king, when there's no moral consensus, when it's all individual moral compasses, women always suffer. Another reason it doesn't work is because of the tack on that we put on the end. You can't do what's right in your own eyes without eventually hurting someone. It's impossible to do what you want, when you want, with whom you want, without hurting someone. And the reason is that it's impossible because eventually you will hurt you. And you are someone. And you are someone extremely important. So if you do what's right in your own eyes, you hurt you. You have hurt someone. You have hurt you. But you hurt yourself, you ultimately will find that you will be mastered by something. Okay? And that thing, process this, okay? That thing that has mastered you, that debt, that habit, that relationship that you just can't figure, you added it on, but now you can't subtract it. Alcohol, drug addiction, any kind of addiction, whatever it is, that thing that mastered you was an expression of your freedom. You said at some point, I'm just going to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, where I want to do it, with whom I want to do it. And now you can no longer do what you want to do, when you want to do it, where you want to do it, and with whom you want to do it, because you've been mastered by the very thing that was an expression of your misguided freedom. And you hurt you. And it all began with a nobody tells me what to do. I make my own choices. 
But you don't just hurt you. You hurt the people with you. This is why parents freak out about um, who their kids hang out with. Because your kid looks at you and says, of course I'll never do that, Mom. And parents can't help but think, yeah, but if you're with them when they do, you can get hurt as well. You hurt the people that care about you. If you're a teenager, you can't possibly hurt you without hurting someone else. It's impossible. If you have a husband or a wife that loves you, you can't hurt you without hurting someone else. It's impossible. If you have living parents, you can't hurt you without hurting people. But then think about this one. This is the big one. You hurt the people coming after you. Now let's get a little personal for a moment. Some of you are a little bit odd. You're a little bit dysfunctional. You got some weird stuff in your life. Some of you, you're just hard to get along with. But you've figured something out. You've traced it back. My dad ran off. My mom was there, but she was never really there. They didn't know how to actually show me love. And some of you have figured out that the reason that you're a little bit weird, you're a little bit off, you're a little bit uncomfortable, is that your parents, somewhere along the line, decided to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whom I want to do it, and it's nobody else's business. And when they did that, they forgot to factor you in. And your mom said, oh, relax. It's not hurting anybody. But it's hurt you every year of your life. It's a myth. It doesn't work. You will always be hurting someone. But why would we aspire to that anyway? Why would we aspire to the bottom of the barrel? It just devolves down into chaos like the story that we started with. What's the win for you in that? If you live like this, what will you get? Practiced, improved, more streamlined selfishness? How can that possibly help you? Why does no one say it like this? Why don't they say, I should be able to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, as long as it helps somebody? Why not aspire to greatness instead of the bottom rung? Why not harness our passion to make the world a better place? Let's live eyes up instead of eyes down. Why not live about dreaming to do as much as we possibly can in the short time that we have been allowed instead of scheming to get away with as much as we can? But then in the end, we're all hypocrites. Because when disaster strikes, we all want help. We are no longer interested in that autonomous person thing anymore. Maybe you have a story that goes something like this, and your dad said to you, don't, 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 don't. And you did it anyway. And then you had to call your dad. Before that, you were all, oh, my old man, he's such a blah, 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 and he's always blah, blah, blah. And now with your one phone call, you need to call him. Dad, I'm at the police station. No, it's not a field trip. Now you have to call the very person whose rules you were breaking, rules that were set up to protect you. Now, as a Christian, I believe that Jesus has welcomed us to call God Father. Any good thing, indicating any good, and including any good rule, any good insight into morality, any insight in how you can make a relationship better, all of that comes from our Heavenly Father. And when we do what's right in our own eyes and just diss God, then the world falls apart. 
we all start to pray. And one of the interesting themes in the book of Judges is that the people will disobey God, then disaster, then turn their eyes to God and say, God, we need help. God who had been ignored. God who had been embarrassed by his people. God who had been disobeyed. God who had been abandoned from the Baals and other idols. That very same God would step into the life of the nation and sent to them a deliverer to work in partnership with them. So as we go on in this series, we go forward and you think about this and you learn about this and you start to evaluate where you are in this cycle right now. Remember this, that God that Jesus told us to call Father will step into your chaos. He will step into the chaos that you have created by ignoring him. So here's the question that I want to leave you with now and over the next couple of weeks. If you were God, how would you respond to a group of people who had decided to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whom I'd like to do it, and no one's going to tell me different? How would you, as God, respond to that? And if you knew that that phrase that is every man for himself is actually every man isolated from himself, what would you do? Because sin always isolates. And right relationships bring us into community. That's the idea behind into one. We are being brought together into one. What can you expect God to say? If our Heavenly Father really loves us, how would you expect Him to respond to you, to me, to us, to a nation? to a culture that increasingly says, I'll just follow my own compass. Forget about yours. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have all sorts of a hullabaloo. We're all going to be celebrating the birth of a king named Jesus. And there'll be Christmas, and there'll be the star, and there'll be angels. And in our nation, we celebrate the birth of a king that we have been living with, just like ancient Israel, for so long saying, but we have no king. We don't want a king. I don't want anybody else telling me what to do. How do we celebrate the birth of a king in a nation that seems more intent than ever on doing what's right in its own eyes? Please come back for part two. God, thank you for choosing to be a part of our lives, to be in it even when we're busy messing it up. You have chosen us and you love us so deeply, so passionately that you don't ever turn away from us, no matter how far or how fast we've turned from you. God, I pray that you would raise up that spirit of Christ-likeness in us and in our church. Transform us from the people that we are, that think about ourselves first and foremost into people who care about those that you love so deeply. Change us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body, and be thankful. Be blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. It's better when you're here. It's better when we're together. The more we connect, the better it gets. I'm convinced of that. And as I send you out today, I want to remind you once again 
that we are called to be Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, and mission-focused, and that our mission is for everyone, everywhere, all the time. The church of Jesus Christ does not live within walls. It goes wherever you take it. Take him with you where you go.